Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, uh, my name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here. would love to meet you and get to talk to you uh, after the service today. Uh, a couple housekeeping items. Uh, first is uh, we, a couple weeks ago, we announced that our children's minister, Jess Swain, was stepping uh, aside from his position because uh, he had an opportunity he wanted to take, and so he's going uh, he's already started that opportunity. Uh, they'll still be a part of our church family, but Jess won't be serving in that uh, capacity. And we began a search. And so uh, just a quick update on that search for a uh, children's minister. We have interviewed uh, and spoke to multiple people uh, about the role, and we are hoping uh, to finalize things this week uh, for sure and be able to announce to you next Sunday, if not the Sunday after, uh, who will be in that role and how they'll be serving and introducing uh, to the church. And so uh, keep praying for that. Uh, it looks like we are ready to do that, but we want to finalize a few things first. So appreciate your prayers and your encouragement as we continue uh, to bring that decision uh, in front of you. So the other thing is uh, we've done kind of an okay job, maybe not as good, of telling you kind of the purpose of the title of the sermon series, uh, Carrying on the Call. And so you're going to see that. We're kind of building it up. There's really two things that drove this idea of this series that we're in. Uh, the first being the relationship between Elijah and his protege, Elisha, and him passing on the ministry to him and this idea that we are disciples who are supposed to disciple people behind us. But one of the big things that really fits that, but also is the driving force behind the studying of this passage, is our desire to help you understand that every single part of Scripture points to Jesus. And so when you are alone, not dependent upon a preacher on a stage, not dependent upon a devotional book or a commentary, but when you're alone and reading your Bible, you would be able to develop the ability to say, okay, how does this point us to Jesus? Because he is the center of everything. And so to carry on that call, even on your own, not just here at the church, for your ability to say, man, every single part of Scripture points to Jesus. That's kind of the goal of what we're after. So today, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be in 1 Kings chapter 18 as we continue this series. And begin to point one another to seeing Jesus with more clarity this morning. Um, but before we get started, I do want to ask God's blessing upon our time. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good, and uh, you really are the giver of all good things in life. My prayer is simple. Speak to us, all of us, this morning, God, as we come before you. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been studying this series, there's been a few things in the life of Elijah that I had missed over the years that have really jumped out to me. Uh, and kind of stood out above the other things. One of them is the way in which Elijah's introduced to the biblical narrative, to the story of the Bible. You see, in our culture, uh, introductions are a big deal. They're very important. And you kind of see this all around uh, the world that we live in. Uh, just this past Thursday evening was the uh, National Basketball Association, the NBA draft. And my son's a really big NBA fan. I'm trying to get that out of his system. But he's a big NBA fan. And so the NBA draft... It's a significant thing to see who drafts what players. And if you watch the draft, or really any sports draft, you notice that as a player is brought up uh, to be picked in the draft, they're going to show you a highlight video of why this is such a good athlete. They'll probably show you some sort of an interview with that particular player where they articulate kind of their life and who they are. And then they'll bring in analysts to tell you why this team is going to pick this. You have no doubt by the time this player is picked who they are, where they come from, and why they're going to contribute to this team. And introductions and everything become really important. But, but Elijah's introduction really throws me off because he just shows up on the scene with like a bang, like boom. Nobody preps us for it. 
There's no writer in the Bible that says, here's Elijah, here's where he comes from, here's who he is, so you can know him. Nobody says, our next speaker really needs no introduction. Uh, nothing like that takes place. He just kind of shows up on the scene, and you read in 1 Kings 17 that there's this moral decay that's taken place all around the land. And everyone begins to worship these false gods, particularly the god known as Baal. As a matter of fact, think, thanks to the wicked rule of Ahab and Jezebel, his wicked, evil wife, uh, they've declared that the state religion in Israel. And so uh, things look really, really bad for God's people. Enter in God's Israelite hero to save the day. The problem is we have no idea who this guy is. He shows up on the scene, in my opinion, with an unbelievable amount of courage, uh, an, an unbelievable amount of confidence, almost borderline too much confidence. At times you're just like, scale it back, Elijah. But he shows up on the scene and he looks at the most powerful, wicked ruler, perhaps he might make an argument in all of history, and he looks at him in the face and says, it's not going to rain. There's going to be a drought until I say so. It's not going to rain again. And then he disappears, and sure enough, it stops raining. And everything seems to listen to what he says. But then things get weird as we learn more about Elijah. He gets uh, brought into this wilderness down by this creek, down by this a body of water where he is fed by ravens. Now, for a Jewish person, an Israelite person, an unclean animal is not ever what you would want to touch, be around, or especially have your food delivered by. And yet, he's fed by ravens, led from there into a Gentile land, which God's people didn't associate with, to be taken care of by a Gentile woman, not a man, but a woman to take care of him. And in that culture, that would have been uh, kind of shocking after this takes place, this woman's son dies, and he does something really weird. He lays over the top of him three different times and brings him back from the dead. And I'm thinking, this isn't normal. Like, if you're like, no, it's kind of normal, Rob. That's not normal. Nothing is normal about this guy's story. And you get to thinking, well, maybe that's the point. Maybe there's a reason for our lack of introduction and the awkwardness of the events that take place in this guy's life. I think this story is pieced together so beautifully, so perfectly, because it's intended, yes, to show us that Elijah was an extraordinary man, but the, the emphasis of this story is to point to the extraordinary God behind him. In every circumstance and situation, God is highlighted over and above Elijah every single time. He's the point of the story. I've heard a lot of sermons in my life. I've heard a lot of People get up and preach in my, my time walking with the Lord. And I think they make a critical mistake when studying the Old Testament. Many people. Because they take these Old Testament stories and these Old Testament characters and they begin to do one of two things typically. They put all the emphasis on that particular character. Or they put the emphasis on the reader of the story, me and you. And they make us the hero of the story in the Old Testament. So you'll hear a sermon or a devotion on David and Goliath, or you'll read a book on it, and somebody will get up and say, well, really, Goliath represents all the giants in your life, and you're supposed to be like David and courageously go and uh, tackle and, and take out all of the giants in your life, and God's going to use you to do that. Or you're gonna, you'll hear a sermon on uh, 1 Kings 18, like we're going to study today, and Elijah on Mount Carmel, and they'll say, well, really, all of what Elijah did is really to point us to have courage and boldness to go and do big things for God, and just like God used Elijah, he wants to use you. And look, those things aren't all bad, like they're not bad lessons to learn, but the problem is we place an emphasis on the character or an emphasis on the reader that the Bible doesn't have any room for. 
You see, in every one of these situations, the emphasis is put on the God who is acting. It is put on the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. It is put on Yahweh. He is highlighted and spotlighted. It is never about us. And we're going to see that today as it plays out in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, as we begin reading, I want to encourage you to grab a Bible. If you don't have one, I would encourage you to grab one in the seat that's in front of you. We're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to read you everything we're going to talk about all at once instead of breaking it into pieces. Because every once in a while, I think a good practice is to, when you're studying a narrative, is to get the whole picture in your mind. And so I'm going to start out with the first four verses in 1 Kings 18 that I did not prep the team to put up on the screens, and so it's not going to show up. But there's something really profound in the first four verses that I don't want you to miss. And then when we get to the, the kind of the thrust of our story, we'll shift gears here. So if you have a Bible, 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and he fed them with bread and water. Now let's shift our attention down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So the stage is being set. Verse 20. So Ahab sent all of the people of Israel to gather the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal but from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began mocking them. This is my favorite part, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he has to be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me, come all the people near, and all the people came near to him, and they repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the, Lord of, the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two shades of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, 
do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench that was also around the altar with water. And at the time of the offering, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook at Kishon and slaughtered them there. It's the word of the Lord. <laughs> it's quite a bit. You know, there are certain times in our lives when we really have to make a decision. We have to make a choice, and to not make a choice is in and of itself a choice. Maybe you've felt this before. For me, uh, no better illustration than when I'm trying to order tickets online to some sort of an event for me or my family. Like if I want to take my son to a ball game, and you know this, you get online and you're trying to decide what you want to do, and the moment you tell them how many tickets you want, you have exactly two minutes before the system kicks you off. And I've never second-guessed myself more in life than during those two minutes. I'm ready, I think I'm ready, but I'm like, do we really want to sit that high up? Do we want to get down lower? The cost difference is not that bad. Or, but really, at the end of the day, wouldn't this game be better at home in our living room where we could order some food and sit comfortably, and then I'm kicked off? And it says, start all over, and then all of a sudden, the seats aren't even available anymore. You see, I oftentimes think, man, it would just be better not to go, better not to have to make a decision at all. But to not make a decision is in and of itself making a decision. This is where Israel's at right now. Israel's at a moment in time where the people of God have been going on without God. They've been kind of trying to live in two different worlds, being okay with this false worship, but being okay with the God of Israel. And Elijah comes on the scene. He says, it's time for you to make a decision. And to not make a decision at this moment in time is in and of itself making a decision. The time has come. As one preacher pointed out, he says this. He said, there is a lot of people that are at this same place in our world today with God. They've not necessarily rejected God per se, but they certainly have not chosen him either. And just trying to kind of live in the balance of two different worlds, not really being loyal and faithful to God, but not really giving in fully to what is going on all around them. But before we get to Elijah and this decision he leaves with these people, there is this profound, tiny little story hidden in 1 Kings 18 that to me hit me this week because it teaches us a lot about what making this decision is like and how God works in the lives of all people all around the world. You see, when, when Elijah's front and center, I want you to picture this. He's kind of an extrovert. He's outgoing. He's loud. He's confident. He walks up to the most evil ruler in all of history and just confidently says, this is how things are going to go. And he shows up on the scene and then he goes away and then he comes back and everything's big and everything's exciting. And that's contrasted completely with the demeanor and the temperament of this civil servant found in the beginning of 1 Kings 18 named Obadiah. You see, if Elijah's an extrovert and he's outgoing and he's charismatic, Obadiah is the extreme opposite. He's more of an introvert. He's honestly, when I read it, I see, man, this guy's kind of a wimp. He's kind of wimpish. He's just kind of really like, ah, oh, I don't want anything. And he's stuck serving as an assistant to this wicked, horrible regime of Ahab and Jezebel. This is this guy's job day in and day out. This is what he does. And so you read that and you think, man, who is this guy? Let's get on. I've never in my life had anybody say, let's open the first Kings 18 and study the life of Obadiah. I mean, anytime you go to 1 Kings 18, there's only one thing you're going for, and it's Mount Carmel, and it's Elijah. 
And yet God uses Obadiah to do some pretty incredible things. I just think in our culture, it's easy to overlook the people that are not loud and brash and exciting. In our culture, we're kind of conditioned to celebrate the big, the momentum, the excitement, everything that's huge and in the spotlight. We're, we're conditioned to elevate things that elevate status and, and helping us be well known and, and things that are everybody else is doing. And we kind of elevate those things. And look, here's the thing. Some of those things, maybe they're not so bad to celebrate. The problem comes when we make that the expectation of success. Like in order for anything to be successful, this is what it looks like. And if we were to impose that standard onto Obadiah, we just read past him. Who is this wimpish little guy who's not doing much? He has no good demeanor. Let's just kind of move on and away from him. And yet the Bible says very clearly he had an impact. I mean, look at what it says in verses 3 and 4. It says, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And verse 4, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave system and fed them bread and water. And this is fascinating. You see, it says that he feared the Lord greatly. What that means is this. He had a very deep love for God. And this might be the only part of the sermon some of you need to hear. With that deep love, he was placed in a completely anti-God environment for his employment. Where nobody honored the God that he honored. As a matter of fact, they pushed hard in the opposite direction of the value system that his God told him to adopt. And he walks in day in and day out into this environment, having to work, having to be faithful. And the text says, in the midst of that anti-God pressure put all around him, he still maintained a spiritual maturity and a deep love for God. Such a deep love that it caused him to act when things got bad enough, he had to make some movement in the midst of this. And here's what I find really fascinating. You see, when Jezebel begins to kill off all the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah takes on a Schindler's List type of ministry. And he takes these hundred prophets and he hides them in a cave system, but he splits them up so they'd be harder to find. And he develops some sort of a subway system so that he can get them food and water. Remember, the drought lasted three years. Three years. Three years. And all the while, not neglecting his work for this horrible regime. All the while going in with work ethic and with character and fulfilling his duties, but at the same time remaining faithful to God so that Ahab's trust in him would grow more and more and more because there's this faithful guy in the midst of all of this, this, I know I can trust him. And yet at the same time, he was honoring the Lord. Now he had his limits, but it's fascinating to me. Like, there's a part of me that wants to know where in the world did these prophets go? Who were they? Where did they end up? It's not told. Like, we're not told. When this whole thing goes down, where did these hundred prophets go? The Bible doesn't tell us. And the lack of details for a person like me drives me mad. It's frustrating. I want to know who these guys are and where they went, what happened with this whole Obadiah situation. But again, I come back to this. You know, I, I think the lack of details have a purpose. Because the details in themselves aren't the point. The point is God works in quiet moments and in loud. God works among the spectacular and the big and the, the, the giant cultural moments of these stand-through-history type of events, and he works through the faithful civil servant who just decides he loves God and isn't going to compromise his values. You see, Obadiah has a lesson to teach us because I think many of us are sitting here wondering when our big moment will come. And we need to come to understand, can God, is God always ready to meet his enemies on Mount Carmel in this loud, giant way saying, bring it to Mount Carmel, I will obliterate anybody? Yeah, he's always ready for that. But does he also work in the quiet faithfulness of someone who loves him and is willing to obey him? Absolutely. 
And some of us have been taught that we need to have these big moments. We had to do these big things for God and have this giant impact. But I think Obadiah is telling us, man, what if God has you exactly where he wants you to have the impact he wants you to have? What if God wants us to focus not on our impact, but on our faithfulness? See, what if that's what he's calling us to? Just be faithful. Let me take care of everything else. Why? Because when we're focused on our impact, the attention's on us. When we're focused on our faithfulness, we're kind of stepping out of the way and saying, God, do your thing. You see, Obadiah has a profound lesson to teach us, and his ministry sets up perfectly the ministry of Elijah. See, now the stage is set, and through the faithful work of Obadiah, now Elijah comes back on the scene. And look, the word of the Lord just kind of comes to him in this simple, quiet moment and says, hey, it's time to go. Go talk to Ahab. And so Elijah's like, okay, God said it. So he goes to Ahab, and in his confident way, which sometimes also drives me mad, maybe because I have too much of it in myself, but he goes to Ahab and he says, Ahab, it's time. And Ahab says, is that you, you troubler? You troublemaker in Israel? He says, I'm not the troublemaker. No, you are. You've led God's people astray for too long, and the time has come. And he sets the stage for this epic showdown, and he calls all the people to Mount Carmel. Think about this, though. There's 850 false prophets in this tiny little country. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. What that tells us is this, that worshiping Baal and Asherah were pretty uh, appealing. It was a really attractive thing to give in to these false gods. You, you know, if you worshiped Baal and you were a farmer, that's exactly what you needed because if, if we were in a drought, and I get it, there's all kinds of room for... Con like this sermon series timing, like, Lord. <laughs> uh, if there was a drought, imagine such a thing, friends, uh, and you worshiped Baal, you'd get all of the rain you needed. And if you worshipped Baal or you worshipped Asherah, there was a sexual element too. So if you were just sexually tempted, just take a trip down to the uh, temple and there were prostitutes that would meet all of your needs. See, anything that you needed. And, and the whole culture had shifted this direction and they were going after all of this, which meant if you didn't go towards it, you wouldn't be able to network, make connections, grow your business. And so if you really wanted to be financially successful, you'd give in and you would just go in that direction. See, the, the, the appeal the temptation to give in, the attractiveness of following this made it look good to everybody in the land except for Elijah. And Elijah comes and in verse 21, he says, hey, uh, God has decided to tell you the word of the Lord is this. Stop living in between these two worlds and make a decision today. Who will you serve? He comes and he essentially says, the word of the Lord, God's word is making some demands of your life. It's calling you to make some decisions in your life. And the response is silence. You notice that the people, they don't say anything. They've got nothing to say. Why? Because they loved the comfort of the way they were living. And God's word was calling them to count the cost. You see, what I learned from this is that all human beings are worshipers. Every single one of us. Everyone in this room, we're all worshipers. We all find something that defines us. Something that we would not be happy without. We've got to have this thing. And you might say, not me, Rob. I'm not a worshiper. I, I'm here because someone dragged me here, and I'm not really a religious person. I would just challenge you and say, I just don't think you know how your soul works. Because we all find something that gives us value, that we give ourselves to. And it's happening all over, all around us. Tim Keller defines it this way. He says, an idol is something that has taken on ultimate worth in our lives. It can be something really good that we turn into something like God. Something that if it were taken from us would devastate us. We have to have this thing. And some of the most popular ones that are not bad things in and of themselves that we see in our culture are security and fulfillment and identity. 
See, for many people, in my, what I've encountered is this. For many people, money is the primary form of their security. And a lot of us would say, not me, man. God's my security. How much time do you spend thinking about your finances, paying your bills, investment, retirement, paying for your kid's college, making sure that you have everything that you could possibly need? How much time does it consume in your heart and in your mind? How faithful are you to giving and tithing? It's a good indication as to where, this really, where your security is truly placed. Are you someone who says, Lord, this is all yours, so the tithe, that's a no-brainer for me. Or are you someone that says, man, we just can't do it this time because ah, things are tight. We're, uh, because in order to protect security, God, i got to take this one into my own hands. What about, uh, this is the hardest one for me. For some people, family is the ultimate source of fulfillment. In, in, in a lot of camps, some are like, hey, if I don't get a family, I don't know how I could ever have value living single. And I, this is a time... This is a sermon for another time, but you understand the Bible calls singleness a gift. You have a gift that other people are too weak to have. We'll talk about that later. But for others, my ultimate fulfillment is in making sure that my kids and my wife and everybody else is safe. For me, I had a rough childhood. I did. I, I just had a really difficult upbringing. And so there's often times where I have to check my heart and say that my, the security and the, the health of my family hasn't become in and of itself a God to me. And I have to check my heart in such a way that I, say, I, I just can't, I love them so deeply, but where is God in the midst of all of this? You see, an idol can become anything. For many of us, our identity is grounded in our accomplishments. Many of us have pressure put on us coming straight out of college that you better go do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, and we've, I, we have gone ahead and defined what success looks like to the point that if we don't get it, we lose our identity. And so we're going after everything. I have to accomplish this and this and this by this age and do this by this stage and this season of life. And I have to get to this point and accomplish these things or I don't know who I am. You see, what I draw away from this is this. You have as many bales in your heart as Jezebel tried to put in Israel. Every single one of us. And so don't think 1 Kings 18 doesn't apply to you. It absolutely does. We all have a propensity to worship and a temptation to make the object of that worship something other than God. And so Elijah says enough is enough. And he issues a challenge. And he says that the challenge is this. It's time for us to have a showdown. It's time for us to meet. And so he calls everybody to Mount Carmel. And just like we read this morning, I mean, it's a kind of a, like incredible showdown where he confronts all of them and he says, it's time. And, and he says, this is the test. Same exact test for both of us. Your God against my, same exact test. And then he sprinkles in a little bit of the, the first ever recorded trash talk that I just love. You know, I'm a sports fan and trash talk has become this thing. And like growing up, I played basketball. And so Gary Payton was like the king of trash talk, if you remember basketball when it was good. And uh, he, would, he would talk all this trash. I'm like, dude, you owe everything you have to Elijah. <laughs> he started this whole thing and he, he gets with them and he taunts them. Well, maybe your God's in the restroom. Let's wait for him to get out. Like I got all day. Like what do you, he says, all right, my turn, guys. And he has this incredible showdown. Now, and we read it. It was awesome. And God wins the day. But there's a few things that are really, if you peel back some of the context, that are just fascinating about this. One is this. This is an away game for Elijah. He comes on their turf. He goes into the middle of enemy territory. It's, it's, a, it's continuing the theme that David mentioned last week where Elijah is going into enemy territory and God is saying, I'm not just the God of Israel, I'm the God of all creation and I'll go anywhere to prove it. And so now he goes to Mount Carmel. Historically, Mount Carmel was known as Mount Baal. It was this mountain where Baal reigned supreme. And so he says, hey, let's have this showdown. I'll come to you. I'll come on you. And here's the deal. God has a perfect road, road record. 
He wins at home. He wins on the road. It doesn't matter where he is. And he shows up on the scene confronting his enemies on their territory. The second thing that's fascinating is this, is that God, Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, doesn't give in to this high energy, high return type of worship. If you notice, these prophets of Baal begin to, hey, we're not getting the response. So we've got to do more to get this God's attention. And so they start dancing around the altar where the dancing doesn't work. They start screaming and ripping their clothes. That doesn't work. They start cutting themselves and bleeding all over the place and screaming out, come on, we, got, we just got to get his attention. We got to get his attention. And yet, how does, how does Elijah call on God to act? He just says a simple prayer. He just says, God, would you do what you always do? I'm going to step out of the spotlight now, and I'm going to let you do what you do. I, I, I'm just here to help. And then God, boom, comes down in a very real way and makes his presence fully known. But the, the, the star of the scene is not Elijah. He just asks God to do what God always does, and he gets out of the way. That's all he's doing. You see, when you worship an idol, that idol requires everything from you in order to get something from it. It requires your complete allegiance, all of your energy, all of your affection, all of your focus. That is the object of your worship, and you better give everything you've got so that that will respond. And you've seen how this plays out. If money is your idol, when you get that to that magic number, what happens? Well, I got to do more to get more, and so you, you have to work harder. If you've, if you've seen somebody who says, the security of my family is what's most important to me, so I'm going to work 90 hours a week and not spend any time with my family. You see, these idols, they require more of us than we're capable of giving to them to get what we want from them. But when Elijah shows up on the scene, he shows, no, I'm just praying, God, you do what you always do, and I'm just going to watch because you're incredible. And that's what worship is. It's just me getting out of the way. You see, when you worship an idol, it requires everything in order to get something from that idol. But when you worship God, he's already done everything for you. And you don't need to do anything to get his attention. He already loves you deeply. And we're just responding to the love that he's already given us. We don't have to earn it, like they're working so hard to earn it. See, the point is that there's no other God who could do what Yahweh God did at Mount Carmel. No other God. It didn't matter how popular that false God was. It did not matter how many famous and powerful people followed that false God. It did not matter what the government declared the religion of the state to be in accordance with that false God. It didn't matter how dedicated their followers were and how much they just strived to get that God and that idol's attention. No other God could do what Yahweh did on Mount Carmel. He invited everybody in the world to say, bring it. I will take on all of your ideologies, and if any of your gods can do what I'm about to do, then they might be a match, and there was silence, and God did what only God could do on Mount Carmel. And he proved in that moment, it was a claim to the exclusivity of the God of Israel, that there is no other God. It's not that God was more powerful than other gods. He proved that there is no other God. And that every other ideology, every other philosophy, every other worldview in that moment was proved powerless because God proved himself to be the only God. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And as we prepare, I want to make a really clear connection. Everything that took place, everything that took place on Mount Carmel pointed to Calvary. And the connections are unbelievable. Why? Because you're not the hero of 1 Kings 18. I'm not going to tell you to go get your energy together and go conquer the world for God. That's not the point, friends. This is not a self-help movement. Everything in 1 Kings 18 points to Calvary. Just consider these things. Jesus, like Elijah, was, on, was at an away game when he went to Calvary. He went on enemy's turf. That hill called Calvary was where Rome reigned supreme. And in that moment, they thought they were going to meet him there and defeat him. And when he died on that cross and he resurrected from the dead, he proved who the real and only real God was. Jesus went into enemy territory just like Elijah did. 
that I'll meet you anywhere because he's not just the God. He's not just a, a local deity. He's the God of all creation. And just like Elijah, Jesus, like Elijah, he confronted every false god, worldview, philosophy, ideology, and everything else when he died on that cross. He did away with the idea of pluralism, which tells us that you can dabble with a few different things, and, and you can have all, all paths lead to God, and you can have whatever religion you want, and you can, as long as everybody's happy and everybody's behaving good, Jesus said, how about this? How about you meet me on Calvary? Every single worldview, every single ideology, every single philosophy, every other religion, every other form of worship, meet me on Calvary, and let's put this to the test. Can anybody else do what I'm about to do and die on the cross? And there was silence, just like there was on Mount Carmel. And nobody responded because there is no other God. There is no other worship. And he died on that cross, and he defeated death like no other God could. It was a definitive statement of exclusivity. Jesus is the only way. And in our world, they've got no problem with Jesus' claims that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's fine. No one likes how he ends that, though. It's as if he's saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Meet me on Calvary, and we'll decide, and I will prove to you that no one comes to the Father except through me. It is a definitive claim of exclusivity. The cross cannot be misunderstood as anything else. And look, it didn't matter how popular all these other ideologies in our culture are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many famous and powerful people follow all these worldviews, philosophies, religions, and ideologies. It doesn't matter how, how much we're promoted uh, on social media and everywhere else in the world. It doesn't matter what the government declares is the religion of the state. It doesn't matter how dedicated other followers of other ideologies are. No other God can do what Jesus did on the cross in dying for the sins of all of humanity. It was here that God declared without a doubt that he is the one true God. Jesus defeated every single idol ever on the cross. The quiet idols of your personal heart and the obnoxious loud ones of the culture all around us. He defeated it all. And on the cross, he declared that there is only one name in heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus. And our text today is not calling us to go and do anything other than this. Choose today who you will worship. Stop playing the middle. Make a decision. As we come to a time of communion, we're going to have a prayer here in just a moment. I'm going to release you to go to the tables. There's two up front, there's two in the back, and you get communion. And here, we're doing it a little different. We do this every once in a while. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll be released. And I want to encourage you to take communion with other people today. Kind of circle up. You can use the entire room. Circle up for just a moment. Maybe somebody says, hey, how has God been moving in your life lately? And just briefly talk for a moment. I mean, it's a powerful thing when you see people circle up, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then somebody just have a quick prayer, if you will, or, or not, and just take communion together. And when we're done, Ben will close us out with a time of worship and response. But during this time of communion, understand this is our reminder every single week. This is our reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross and the declarative statement that he made that there is no other God but him, no other God that deserves our worship and affection except for him.